We'll be taking today's study from John chapter 1, and we're looking at, as we looked at last week, we looked at the Logos of God, and today we're going to be looking at Jesus as the light. And we'll find it as helpful as we saw the Logos, as big and lofty as John was making this enormous point by calling Jesus the Logos of God, the Word of God. He does the same thing in calling him the Phos, or the the light of God, and so, or just the light, period. And so in John chapter 1, we have this great opportunity to, to see what he means by this. And I want to begin by discussing a common misunderstanding that people have concerning the Bible and concerning the Bible's use of imagery. Many people think that when the Bible uses imagery, such as light or such as marriage or shepherding or some of the other examples that it uses to explain concepts to us, that God was looking down upon the earth, wanting to inspire the word of God. And he looked around at what we had and found some things that could be helpful for us to understand him. But the truth of the matter is, God did not look in to see what was around. He made what was to be. He made those things in order to have built into our creation, the very fabric of our lives, a testimony of himself, a built-in connection point, as it were. And this is true of light. He made light and darkness. He wove it into the very fabric of creation to reveal his glory to us, to weave into our lives the truth about him, something that we experience, that we observe every single day, is something that can teach us something about him. And he has touched on it here in his word, and he has used this concept consistently through the Bible, this concept of light. So John opens his gospel with this, among other things. And what we're going to do is we're going to read from chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, is what we'll be taking a look at. Here's what it says there. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for the scripture. We pray, Lord, that you will give us even greater understanding. And as we study the whole gospel of John, I pray that you will build a foundation in this, his prologue, that will help us, Lord, to, to understand all those things. It will unfold what the message is. And Lord, we pray that by it, we would believe and we would live. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, Jesus is the light, and very simply from John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so from then on, Jesus clear, you know, John is clearly speaking of Jesus as the light. And I think the first thing we want to do is just survey what else does John say concerning Jesus as the light? Well, we saw here what he says in chapter 1, but in chapter 3 has a very important dialogue concerning light. And this is just after the very famous John 3.16. And what we find is he begins to speak of judgment. He begins to speak of what is the criteria for those who will be saved. What determines who is saved and who perishes. And he says this about light. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so he makes it clear when he speaks with Nicodemus that evening when Nicodemus interestingly, under cover of darkness, comes to see Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't popular among the leadership, and Nicodemus is one of the leadership, what does he do? He uses darkness to hide, as if he's doing something wrong, to go meet Jesus. And the great irony about it is, he comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus says, let me tell you about light. Let me tell you why you came to me in darkness. And people who are doing things wrong, they seek out darkness. I'm the light that's come into the world, and the world has rejected it because they hate it. And this is a profound thing that he says concerning himself. He mentions light a few more times. He mentions John the Baptist as the light. We might touch on that later. But look, Jesus just says plainly here in chapter 8, verse 12, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the next chapter, in chapter 9, verse 5, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And it's interesting, that sheds some light, interestingly. In Matthew, when in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of his people as being the light of the world because he's returned to the Father. So fascinating the way this is used throughout the Gospel. In chapter 11, Jesus says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? See, his friend Lazarus was sick and, you know, he said, well, if he's sick, he'll recover. And he's like, you know, he delays going to go raise Lazarus. You can read about it in chapter 11. But they say, you know, why are we going to go back to Jerusalem? Don't they want to, you know, then we have trouble there. Aren't they seeking to kill you? And, uh, and he's like, well, you know, he says this, and he says this about traveling literally to Jerusalem by way of darkness. He says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So they went to Jerusalem, but they went with Jesus. He was the light. They, they were going to be okay. In other words, he's saying, you're with the light, you're going to be all right. You're going to be okay. So we come to chapter 12, 
And chapter 12 is kind of a pivotal chapter because once he raises Lazarus from the dead, in chapter 12, it becomes very plain that they're seeking to kill him. The plot kind of thickens, so to speak. They're, with this raising of Lazarus, they're not only now thinking about killing Jesus, but Lazarus and maybe some others as well. And so as these things turn, he gives us long discourse in chapter 12, the, the Passion Week, after he's done Triumphal Entry, he says, the light among is among you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And it's very interesting how he uses this imagery. Later in that same chapter, he says this. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so one of the major things we'll see about this light is that not only is he the light of the world, but he lends light to those who are with him to the point where they become light themselves. He also spoke of John the Baptist as light in John chapter 1. Uh, the verses that we just saw, he came as a witness, bear witness about the light. And then Jesus, in speaking about John in chapter 5, he says, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. For a while. They liked what John the Baptist had to say. It was novel. It was new. They hadn't heard a prophet from God in a long time. He was really influencing a lot of people. And people were repenting of sin, which, you know, the Pharisees were all for the repentance of sin. Yeah, y'all should live better is what they were thinking. This guy, John, he's got it right. But then John started to say some other things that they weren't as favorable about. So they enjoyed his light for a little while. So given those things, let's look back at John chapter 1 and see what else did he talk about here? What else was he linking to? Last time we talked about the fact that he begins his gospel with provocative words that would draw the mind of the Jew back to Genesis chapter 1, back to the creation account that begins with the same words, in the beginning. And then he lays out Christ as this agent of creation, the word himself through whom God created all things. And then we see in verse 5, the light shines in a darkness. A darkness has not overcome it. He begins this contrast of light and darkness that's carried on through, as we saw chapter 3, where the lights come in, but the darkness does not like it one bit. And of course, Jesus Christ in verse 9 is called the true light. See, Jesus is not like light. Light is like Jesus. Do you see the difference in the thinking there? Instead of thinking that Jesus is like light, we think, okay, light is like Jesus because light is an element of creation. It's what God used and put into creation that we would understand something about Jesus, yet Jesus is so much greater than it. And some aspects of him are as illustrated to us by light. He's the ultimate antitype for light. He is the true light. So creation begins, if you noticed, with the separation of light and darkness. So when he starts talking about light and darkness, they would go, oh yeah, that's more from that creation account. Look what it says in verses 3 and 4 here. God said, let there be light, the first element, let there be light. 
And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So there's immediately a contrast put into creation. Before there's a, a firmament, before there's land, before there's seas, before there's any living thing, before there's any plants upon the earth, he creates his distinction. There's light and there's darkness. And in contrast to those pagan beliefs, which were common in the world, common throughout all the other religions of the world, they often worshipped light or its various sources. They would worship the sun, the moon, and the stars, these things that give light upon the world. The Bible holds up light as a creation made to glorify God himself. Look what God says that we uh, referred to earlier and we read earlier today. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. The heavens, the sun, moon, and stars, by implication, all those things, even the spiritual things in the heavens, they're creations. And this was a great contrast to the things that were in the Greek world, the things that were known in the Greek world, where they had a tendency to, to see a thing they enjoyed in creation and give it a God. Let's assign it a God. It also points to life. In verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so he equates, and, and he kind of puts together this idea of light and life. And interestingly, when we begin to consider light, and we begin to consider its role in creation as God made it, he made light the source of life in a biological sense. And we might think we're smart, sciencey people because we figured out photosynthesis and, and we figured out, you know, the food chains and things like this. I assure you, 2,000 years ago, John's audience totally understood this. They understood that if you plant your crop under a shade tree, it's not going to go well. And they understood that the animals ate the vegetation, and the people ate the vegetation and the animals. So they understood that this light is integral to making the plants grow, and that makes everything else live. And God so ordered our creation. Why? So that he could come in and he could say the, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. In other words, Jesus Christ, he's the source of life, just as light is the source of it biologically on this planet. And when we really think about this, when we think, when we ask people, if you had to give up one sense, what would it be? Usually, usually the sight is last. Like I could maybe function without my hearing. I could maybe function without my sense of smell. Some of y'all proved that a couple years ago. And I could maybe do without taste, though it would make life drab. But give me my vision. Let me be able to see. And when we, when we hear of someone stricken with blindness, then, then we, we hear of something that just brings us sadness, like they've lost their sight. And even those who don't have sight, they will admit, oh, it's far better to have been born without it than to have had it and lost it. Because they don't even know what it's like. Our sight is so important and we cannot accomplish most of what we do in order to survive without it. The light gives life. The light is nurturing. But did you ever realize the light is also dangerous? Some of us have realized that more than others. That overexposure to it can, can kill. 
that someone who is is out uh, in the elements, if they're stranded for some reason in the wilderness, they need to find shelter, particularly if this is a arid or hot region of the world, they need to get protection from the sun. Greeks saw the ability to see light, to see as being alive. They would talk about the eyes growing dim. And when they would say that, they would not just be saying someone's losing their sight. They could say that of someone whose sight was fine, but they were dying. Because to be alive is to see in the Greek mind. We also have utter dependence on light. When we think about uh, in the judgment, what does God do in Exodus chapter 10 and, and in that surrounding area when he's punishing the Egyptians for not releasing the Israelites and bringing his wrath upon them? One of the judgments is this light. And listen to it, describe it. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. The darkness was so bad that they couldn't see, as it were, their hand in front of their face. And if you've ever been in a deep cavern, a cave of some kind, and they give you that test, they turn the lights out, then you realize what that's like. It's very disconcerting. And sure enough, the, the longer you're in it, the more it is when they turn those lights back on, that you find yourself facing a direction you were to where you were facing. So all the Egyptians, the darkness was so bad, they stayed in their place. They didn't rise. So this light is this great judgment upon the Egyptians. Why? Because they worshipped a sun god. And in fact, most of, in fact, all of the various curses that came upon them can be traced back to one of their spiritual beliefs. God was shutting them down and showing himself to be the one true God. So this idea of light and, and the absence of it brings us to the concept of revelation. Both Jews and Greeks looked at light as the idea of, of providing knowledge or illumination of some kind. And this is, uh, this is helpful for them to see uh, revelation intellectual illumination was what the Greeks were thinking. Spiritual illumination is what the Jews were thinking. But they were always thinking light equals revelation. And so when John opens his gospel saying Jesus is the light, well then John is saying this is a revelation. This is something you need to understand. You need to know this Jesus. And he makes it clear. The light shines in the darkness, he says. And the darkness has not overcome it. That's a really interesting word that he says there. When he says that the darkness has not overcome it, the idea is that the darkness cannot handle it, as in cannot come to grips with it, cannot control it, cannot overthrow it. It cannot grapple even with the light. And this true light that comes into the world 
is Jesus. It speaks of revelation, but it also speaks of transcendence, the fact that, that God is transcending the barrier between there and here, that he is transcending the barrier between spiritual and physical by sending Jesus to reveal spiritual truth into our reality. Look what he says in Hebrews about who Jesus is. And we talked about this with the Logos as well. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom we appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And look at this. It's not just the words that Jesus said that is the revelation of him. In verse 3, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so Jesus was much more than what he said. Jesus' example and the way he acted and the things that he did and the signs and wonders and, and enlisting disciples and, and reemphasizing the Old Testament and bringing it into showing its relevance to all times. He brings all those things together. He is a great revelation in many, many ways. And he is this revelation, this word that became flesh, dwelt among us. And John makes a big deal of the fact we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He opens his first letter with an appeal to this. We've seen it. We've handled it. We've touched it. We have seen the Lord. And so at the coming of Jesus, then, this light plays an interesting role. When angels appear to shepherds, when a star leads the magi, great light is accompanying. On the road to Damascus, Saul, who was persecuting the Christians, encounters Jesus, and Jesus appears as with great light. And interestingly, Saul is what? Stricken blind. And when does he receive his sight? He receives his sight at the touch of one of Jesus' people. Do you see how this whole idea of light just permeates all the scriptures? When Peter is rescued out of prison by an angel, light shone around the angel. Angels appear in white. Why do they so often appear in white? Because it reflects all colors. It gives the most light. It gives the most reflection of light. And light is associated so often with this revelation of God. Darkness, on the other hand, is associated with ignorance, stumbling, being lost. And all of those things are cured by a little bit of light, the revelation. Notice the practice of light in religious worship. In the Old Testament, there were lights in the holy place, both the tabernacle and the temple. Both the tabernacle and the temple faced east in order to meet the sunrise of the new day. In all cultures, light is associated with revelation. It is used as a symbol for coming to know or understand something, be it intellectual or spiritual. And by contrast, ignorance and foolishness are associated with darkness. And another important thread of this concept of light is that the word of God is spoken of as being light. In Psalm 119, it says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. In one, verse 130 of the same psalm, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts 
understanding to the simple. Do you see the parallelism it draws there? That to have light is to have understanding. To not have it is to be simple. In 2 Peter 1.19, it said like this in the New Testament concept, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter here is speaking, he's writing midway through the first century before the New Testament has been fully written and compiled. So when he is talking about the prophetic word being a light, he's talking about the Old Testament. And there are churches today that would, that would want to cut that off. They would want to say, no, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. But yet Peter thought it was a light. He thought it was important. But by far, probably the best passage in really contrasting light and darkness and, and putting it in the perspective of spiritual revelation is what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, if people aren't seeing the gospel we're preaching, they're not understanding it, veiled being something that partially blocks an image, light. He says, even if it's being veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Contrast it there. He goes on, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. For God who said, let light shine out of our darkness, it has shown, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know the glory of God? Do you want to know God? Do you want to know who he is? It's found in Jesus Christ, in the person of Christ. And this was what the Bible is challenging us with today. Jesus Christ is light. He is revelation from God. There's no clearer revelation than it has ever been. He is the crowning revelation of all creation. And that's a really important point because so many people go looking for revelation in other places. They go looking to other authorities and other religions and things like that. Yeah, 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 I'm a Christian, but I want to go see what these other philosophies have to say. I'm going to read this book that this person on TV recommended, you know, to, to really understand life and how life works and to get ahead in life and things like that. But for revelation of God, it's the Word of God. That is the light, and Jesus is the light. Light also speaks to sanctification and holiness. And this is something that is found all throughout the Bible. And we'll just kind of touch on it very, uh, very surface touch on this is, is what we'll do today. Uh, it's, of course, used for imagery for the glory or the presence of God. And we can see that clearly in the Psalms. 
uh, like Psalm 104, the first two verses here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. It's like God is clothed in light, and light is used often to speak of the glory of God. It's used to speak of the presence of God in the temple and in the tabernacle. It was a pillar of fire that led the Israelites in the wilderness so that they could see in the night. And this was called the glory of God. It was called the angel of the Lord leading them. It's also applied to the people of God. And this is where we want to spend a little more time. You'll find plenty about the the glory and the presence of God being associated with light. But we saw John 3.20 where it said, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, doesn't come to the light. But look what else John says in his first letter, in in 1 John chapter 1. He says, this is a message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. We'll see it in many other places. Ephesians 5 is very helpful. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Paul's speaking of unbelievers uh, who are engaged in all kinds of sinful activities. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Do you get that? Paul says a lot of things about what we were and what we are in Christ. And one of those things is we were dead, but now we're alive in Christ. We were following the ways of the world. Now we're following Christ. And he says here, you were darkness but now you are light in the Lord. And the encouragement is walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul applies this to us. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this about his people. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And look what he connects light to as far as us being light. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do other people know that we're Christians? Because we say so? Well, people say a lot of things. There ought to be that testimony of works along with the proclamation of the gospel that we make. Look what was said of Daniel in Daniel chapter 5 by the king, a pagan king. He says of Daniel, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods, or Elohim, is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So even this pagan king understood light equates with revelation, with understanding, with wisdom. That's what light is. And so the faithful in the Bible are described as being light. Those who have been illuminated. They, we don't have the light ourselves. 
We don't generate the light, but we reflect the light. We shine with the light of the glory of God. God's people are a whole community, therefore, of light. As the psalmist says in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you see life put in parallel to light and salvation? As sleepers rising from the dead, coming out of the tomb, tearing off the burial clothes, seeing the light, this is the people of God, the people of light. Now let me summarize light, the the imagery of light in the Bible, with this quote that I think you might find helpful. It says, in all of the Bible's references, and this is in your notes if, if you're not able to read it here, in all of the Bible's references to light, light is not self-generated. It comes, usually unbidden, from outside the earthly and human sphere and transforms that sphere with the transcendent splendor. As a symbol, light thus pictures the simultaneous transcendence and eminence of God. It's from above, but it permeates everyday life. See, the light from the sun comes to us. We cannot reach the sun. We cannot turn off the sun's light. We can attempt to block it, but we're only ever partially effective in blocking that light. It doesn't stop the light. It merely limits where it penetrates. But that sunlight, that penetrates into our everyday life. It penetrates into the world, into our very bodies. And so there's much more to be said about this. But I will say almost no observation concerning light and its symbolic use in the Bible takes the analogy too far. You know, there's a lot of parables in the Bible and people try to make the parables as allegories and give importance to every little element and we generally go astray when we do that. You can usually find one major point to a parable, maybe two or three, but when you start to assign significance to every little thing, next thing you know, you're into heresy of some kind because it's not designed for that. But God wove light into our creation in such a way as to make it work in a variety of ways and make its depths something that can be sought out for a long time. Jesus is the light. And I'll take us back to chapter one, verse five, to remind us that the darkness has not overcome it. This is a picture of the victory to come. Light is an image of the inevitable victory in Jesus Christ. The inevitable victory in Jesus Christ. And the invitation John gives right off the bat is, hey, let's, uh, let's join that team. Let's, let's get on the side of light. Look how he explains it here. In verses 13 and 14 or 12 and 13, he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So in other words, that some 
were receptive to the light. Some noticed the light. Some beheld the light and didn't try to hide from it. A right is given by God to those who receive it, to those who believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. The benefits of light in our world, as you know, uh, one of the benefits is it produces vitamin D in the body. That the body uses the light of the sun to actually make our own vitamin D. Usually not enough because most of us usually aren't outside enough. But can you imagine boasting that, hey, made myself some vitamin D today? You might be able to boast in that you stepped out into the sun, but you have nothing to do with the chemical processes, and especially nothing to do with the light that comes from the sun. You can't turn it up, you can't turn it down, you can't turn it off. It's there, and it comes from outside our realm and penetrates in. And this is what, G, that what John is clearly saying about this salvation that's available in Jesus Christ. He gives a right to become children of God to those who receive him, who believe in his name. That's like stepping outside into the sun. You can't take credit for the benefits of the sun simply by stepping outside. You didn't make the sun. You didn't cause the sun. But nevertheless, in response to these benefits of the sun, in response to what the sunlight provides, you stepped into it. You got the right to become the children of God. Born not of your own will. You can't even take credit for your act of stepping out. But born of the will of God himself. It's a right given by God to all who believe. And belief equals life in the gospel here. Don't worry about what follows. So many people are like, I don't know if I'm ready to follow Jesus. I don't know if I really want to embrace that. I don't really know. Yeah, I kinda, it's kind of convincing. I kind of like it, but I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could live it. Never is that given consideration prior to salvation in the gospel. Why, the rest follows. When we get to the fact that he's the good shepherd, we're going to see something. His sheep hear his voice. His sheep follow him. His sheep obey him. The followers of Jesus Christ love him. The followers of Jesus Christ and those who obey, they do, they, they express that love by being obedient. And so if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, make the move. Embrace the gospel. Repent of your sins and trust in him for your salvation. And let the rest worry about itself. It will follow if you truly believe. So put all the objections out the door and all the other things, move them off to the side because this is too important because John says that there's darkness and light. And the light doesn't like it doesn't like the gospel. And very often our so-called reasons for not coming to Christ, for not taking the next step of faith, for not really embracing the gospel is the fact that we are darkness. 
And we'll pile up other excuses why I don't really want to, I don't want to go off half cock. I don't want to become a Christian until I'm really ready. No, 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 it's none of that. You just submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ immediately with no turning back. And he'll take care of the rest. He will instruct you. He will guide you. He will lead you. And by faith you will follow. The tendency is to run and hide from him. Look what it says in the book of Revelation. This to me is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible because all this wrath, it pictures all this wrath coming down upon the earth and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See, when the light shines and we run from that light, we hide from that light, eventually there's a time when it's too late. To the extent so that being said, <laughs> the next thing I want to mention is this. To the extent we partake of Jesus Christ in his word, that we meet him in prayer, that we fellowship with him in the church, we expose ourselves to his light, and he drives the darkness from us. Don and I haven't changed the look of our bedroom in, oh, maybe 17 years or so. And we're looking at it and we're like, yeah, this really, we need to change some things here. We need some new curtains. We need some, you know, bedspreads or whatever else. Well, one thing, you know, we both decided on, you know, that's a no brainer to us. This is just how you do it. When we get curtains for the bedroom, they're going to be blackout curtains. I don't know what color they'll be on the inside, but on that other side, they'll be black as night if we can help it. To block out as much light as possible when that, when that sun starts coming up at 5.30 in the morning and we're not ready to get out of bed. Amen? Anybody else here like it dark when you sleep? But you know, the funny thing about blackout curtains is I have never found blackout curtains that work 100%. Now, some of them are pretty good. But there's always little light comes around the edges of them. And so then they even have these kind that you install with, with brackets around them and things that go around the curtains that are black on the inside to absorb and block even more light. But even those aren't 100%. And have you noticed when you're, when you're sitting in a place like this with these great lighted windows and everything else and you close your eyes, it's dark, but you can still see where the lights are. You still know where the window is. You can still find the window with your eyes closed. Even if it's a cloudy day, even when the sun gets low. See, it's a light that penetrates. And it even etches a memory onto our eyes. When we shut our eyes real fast, we still see every window in the room. At least for a moment, it leaves an after image on the, on the very retina of our eyes that those cells are still being stimulated in a way as to produce the image even though the light's not getting to them anymore. The impression has been made. And in that same way, 
as people of God, when we struggle, when we doubt, when we try to shut out the light, when we try to shut God out of our lives, and when we think that everything is darkness around us, and when we despair of what's going on, the afterimage is still there. You know where the light is. You know how to turn to it. And sometimes it is a matter of just opening our eyes. Turn to that light. Open the eyes. Be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this day. Thank you so much for bringing us together, for bringing the word of God to bear on our lives. We thank you for your goodness, Lord, that always shines through. We thank you for your word, for in it we find the words of life. We find the word himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light. And this day, Lord, those of us that trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've sometimes drawn the curtains or pulled the blinds down on our faith. We know what we ought to do, but we hesitate to do it for one reason or another. We make excuses. Lord, I pray that you would just draw those curtains back, that you would just flood us with light, that you would just reveal yourself even more and more and give us the faith to respond to you in the proper way and in obedience that we would come to you and that we would know you more. For, Lord, every time we do, we are encouraged. And we know it was worth it. And we look back on times when we didn't walk with you and we say, what caused such foolishness? And, Lord, whether it's something within our hearts or whether it's a care or concern of the world or whether it's an influence from the outside, Lord, I pray that you would cut those things off from us and that you would fill us with your light and with your truth. Lord, we thank you so much for your ministry and the saints. We thank you for the salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray earnestly this day that all who hear this respond to you with an open eye, an open heart. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.